This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I use DigitalOcean to host a side project, and I'm starting to move the hosting for my blog and this podcast off their current hosting solution to DigitalOcean. With a large selection of one-click apps, from the basics of the LAMP stack, to Ghost and WordPress for blogs, to pre-set up Docker host images, with droplets that can spin up in 55 seconds, the ability to manage SSH keys for remote access, and more, DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get your project up and running. With the ability to easily add team members, use their API to scale out your applications, and have droplets in data centers around the world, DigitalOcean is ready to take on your larger projects as well. Have a question on how to set something up with DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean has a strong community around creating documentation and tutorials as well to get you set up and running quickly. New users can get up and running on DigitalOcean for free using promo code GEEKRY, all cap, to get $10 worth of credit when you get started. This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Have you been thinking about learning Clojure but don't know where to start? Would you like a fun introduction that guides you through the difficulties of learning new concepts? Would you like to learn the fundamentals without spending hours wading through blog post tutorials? Try the interactive courses at PurelyFunctional.tv. They teach you quickly and thoroughly using animations, exercises, and screencasts. The courses build good fundamentals and guide you to develop skills with the language and libraries. You can get a 25% discount by using the link purelyfunctional.tv slash geekery. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this episode. First, I want to let everyone know about CodeMesh. CodeMesh London is the European conference for alternative technologies and programming languages. It takes place on the 3rd and 4th of November with the tutorial days on the 2nd of November. CodeMesh brings together a wide range of alternative technologies and programming languages and the wonderful, crazy people who use them to solve real-world problems in the software industry. Expect code-heavy talks from over 50 speakers, including Sir Tony Hoare, creator of the Quicksort algorithm, co-designer of Haskell, John Hughes, the co-inventors of Erlang, Joe Armstrong and Robert Verning, Don Syme, creator of F-Sharp, co-inventor of Julia, Stefan Karpinski, Evan Zabucki, designer of Elm, core team members of the Hack and Rust languages, and many more. Use code FNGeekery10 for a 10% discount on the two days of conference. Second, Chicago Erling is also coming up on the 10th of October. The format for this year is a bit special. Instead of a conference, it will run as a one-day Erling workshop in the heart of Chicago. They will have two tracks, Essentials, led by past guest Martin Logan, as well as Fred Herbert, and an IoT app build-out track led by seasoned web-scale engineers Brian Troutwine and Garrett Smith. The goal of Chicago Erling is to keep it interesting and super affordable. Early bird registration is $49, and the full price is $69. In addition to Chicago Erling, City Code will be taking place on the 9th of October, the day before Chicago Erling. City Code Chicago is a one-day immersive technology conference for programmers to spark creativity and innovation that invites brilliant speakers from Chicago and around the country to share important ideas and let those flame into deeper exchange with you involved in discussion. This year, City Code Chicago will be at the world-famous Second City Theater. This small venue, designed for improv theater, brings speaker and audience together. There's one track, so everyone shares and contributes to the same experience. Join them Friday, October 9th, 2015, to feed and invigorate your inner geek. Lastly. 
ElixirConf is coming up on the 2nd and 3rd of October, with a day of workshops the day before on the 1st of October in Austin, Texas. You can still register for the two-day, two-track conference, or add the optional one day of training on October 1st. But hurry, some training classes are filling up. Breakfast, lunch, and Wi-Fi are provided at the conference. Over 28 speakers and 200 attendees will be at the conference, and keynote speakers include past guests Jose Valim and Jessica Kerr. Don't miss this opportunity. To find out more and to register, visit www.elixirconf.com. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Now on to today's episode. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Matthew Flatt. Matthew, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm a professor at the University of Utah in the School of Computing. I've been here about 15 years. Before that, I was a grad student at Rice University working with Matthias Felaisen, and we continue to work together along with some of the other students who were there at the time, Robbie Findler especially. And before that, you know, I worked for a year in industry and was an undergrad at CMU before then. So you mentioned Matthias, and I know I had previously William Bird on, and I know he's got a big around. Feldman as well, and there's a big community in Lisp. So how did you kind of get interested in Lisps and get started there? And what attracted you to the Lisp link, this family of languages? Yeah, so that's all part of the same academic family there, Felias uh, and uh, Matthias was a student of Dan Friedman, as was Will, I believe. So, But I just kind of fell into it. I wasn't especially looking to get into Lisp, but uh, I went from went to grad school at Rice to work with Matthias, and that's what he was doing. So lucky me, I ended up at the right place. And it just happened to be you knew his name and wanted to get a chance to try and work with him then? And you were more following him than any particular technology? That's right. And I was pointed to him by professors at CMU, especially Peter Lee, that I worked with a little bit at the end of being an undergraduate and got advice from him on where to go. And he gave me some pointers, including to Matthias. So Peter Lee really helped me get started in the early days. So you got in with Matthias, but how did that journey of getting into lists come about because you again i obviously if he's working with lists that you're there but what kind of what was that journey of on your side of getting into lists and experiencing them so as an undergraduate i had a course that used scheme i think yeah my data structures course was in scheme and uh, while i was at cmu i worked in the psychology department building software for performing experiments and originally started out working on the graphics interface for that program project, but gradually I turned it into a, a language building exercise, building a language for describing experiments. And along the way, I eventually realized I was reinventing Lisp, like many people do. I looked at different languages and took the programming language course eventually, taught by Peter Lee, and that's how I started to become informed. And then went to Rice, and I forget how it goes eventually, but Matthias will tell the story too, how somehow Matthias and I ended up in a miniature programming contest where he was writing Scheme and I was writing Perl because Perl was what I knew. Uh, and the challenge problem involved parsing some some tables and generating some output. But what he didn't tell me was that the tables were already in S expression format. But he also saw me uh, try to write Perl and struggle with the syntax and rereading what I had written and, and all the things people know about Perl. And I started, of course, working on the kinds of things they were doing. And towards the end of my first year as a grad student, Matthias had this, his epiphany that in order to move things along, he really should focus on education and teaching beginning programming students at the college level. And 
he had in mind how to do it and you know he talked with his group about it and we needed a programming environment and i said oh i know how to do that kind of thing you take a gui together and put it together with a scheme interpreter and and there you go and that's where racket originally plt scheme originally MIS scheme uh that's where it all came from okay so you got in to racket pretty early on and essentially helped co-create the ecosystem and environment as part of your undergraduate studies Sorry, graduate studies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a little project to combine a graphic interface with an existing scheme interpreter that got way out of hand. So I started that and then started trying to make it better and still doing that now. About how long ago was that? What When did that start happening? And how, or really, how long has Racket been around since the glimmer of the eye? Yeah, that was 20, 20 years ago last February. Okay. So. I've just been hearing about Racket within the past two or three years, so I wasn't sure how new it actually was. But the glimmer of the eye and the start of the foundations is 20 years. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's been uh, quite a while, and I've been very fortunate to be able to do it uh, all of that time. And, of course, Racket, the name Racket, has only existed about five years, if I remember correctly. So that's partly why you could not have heard of Racket before then. It was called PLT Scheme, or maybe known as Doctor Scheme still very much part of the this the scheme world at that time and, and combined with other things. Okay, yeah, PLT scheme sounds vaguely familiar. I'm not huge into the Lisp community, but that sounds vaguely familiar. And then the reason I mainly heard about Racket and it was getting its promotion was seeing people talk about Racket as the use of which language you do and how to get started if you wanted to work through the exercises and structure of interpretation of computer programs because it was... If you're trying to get schemes set up and run it, Racket's probably your best way to get that going. Yep, that was that was how we started initially, is trying to make a scheme that was user-friendly. And that was about graphic interfaces in the early days. So yep, that makes sense. That's where we've always been and tried to be. And one of those things about that as well that I heard was with that, it was like, well, you can either use Racket proper, which I guess was the PLT scheme versus the MIT scheme. and what I heard, and this is one of the things that made it seem really interesting, was that you could have different dialects of Lisps and potentially and scheme schemes specifically that you would just put some sort of directive in your program when you run it and say, I want to use the MIT or I want to use this scheme or this scheme. That's right. And that's one of our main directions, both sort of in research and practice, is making Racket a language for supporting multiple languages. And it, that came out of necessity on a couple of fronts. First, because when we started building this, it was for teaching. We wanted it to be user-friendly. And the raw scheme language just is not beginner-friendly, because almost anything you write means something, and probably not what you meant it to mean if you're a beginner. So we started out building these languages specifically for teaching, and that meant our environment right from the beginning supported multiple languages, different layers of the te teaching languages from beginner to advanced as well as the, the base version of Scheme that we were using to build Dr. Scheme itself. And as we evolved the language, that went hand-in-hand hand with backwards compatibility. As we wanted to improve the language, we wanted to make big changes to the language, but we didn't want to th throw all our old code away. And so being able to declare the language became a way of saying whether you were running the old language or the new language. And this went hand-in-hand hand with macros for constructing those languages so that we eventually evolved and discovered this way of building up families of languages where you, you know, the only core grammar of Racket, in a sense, is hash laying and then some identifier that says what language will take over from there. 
Okay, so what dialects are actually supported? Is it all just scheme variations, or does it dig into some of the common Lisp style variations? Because I know that there's the concept of a Lisp one and Lisp two, where scheme is the Lisp one, I believe, and common Lisp is Lisp two. So does it cover kind of both of those aspects as well? It could. Uh, what you get out of the box is variants of scheme and variants of languages without parentheses. So a documentation language that's more around text than parentheses or even Algol 60 or a data log. Uh, there hasn't been much demand within our, our community for making something fully compatible with common Lisp, for example, which is probably a, would be a huge undertaking. But different languages that pull in some ideas from that. So there's a, a Racter language, which uh, adds a little bit of closure kinds of things to Racket. Um, I saw recently something about an ARC variant made on, on top of Racket. So the, the ones you get out of the box right now tend to be scheme-based or miscellaneous. But the idea is that all these others are within reach. Okay. Yeah, and again, this is cursory looks, and I knew that there would be, from my little bit of research and digging into lists in the, back, in the, in the past, has been the difference being things like the namespacing and environment, where the environment would either be two different kind of environment namespaces for variables and functions, which is more the common list style is my understanding, which that's one of the reasons I was wondering is that seemed like that would be a completely different style of a list than the scheme list that I know was supported. I think that would be not a major obstacle. I think it would be straightforward to have the different syntactic forms have different positions where they, they look up names in a different way. And that's, that's well within reach within a macro, uh, within the macro system. But perhaps the style of using it is a little bit different. Okay. And you kind of talked about it. And this is one of the other things that sounds really interesting about Racket as opposed to any of the other lists I've seen was the Dr. Racket. And because that's a full-fledged environment as well, right? That's more than just an IDE, an editor built in. That's almost leaning towards what I've seen of the small talk environments where you get code execution and evaluation of variables and stuff kind of in line in real time and as things get evaluated, correct? It's somewhere in between. So okay. we think of it as the IDE and not so much in the small talky world where you're in uh, your own little world of the virtual machine. On the other hand, our virtual machine does do a lot of the things that you normally rely on the operating system for, to run separate processes, to run separate independent GUIs, for example. So it's, it's sort of in between. When you use Dr. Racket and you test your programs, uh, you're running on the same VM that Dr. Racket itself is running. So more like small talk in that sense. Um, on the other hand, the, the worldview is kind of outward looking instead of self-contained as in the small talk view. Okay. And it, the other thing it kind of reminds me of is some of the scratch demos I've seen with that is where it's like they're very interactive. You're, as soon as you change things, you can start to see and feel that world. Whereas a lot of IDEs, they're pretty powerful, but you don't feel immersed in everything you're doing to the extent that the little demos I've seen of Dr. Racket on like YouTube videos that people have recorded seems a lot more immersive than an IDE is kind of where I was getting, right? Yeah, I think you're right. Because you are in the same VM in the machine that you're running and the environment and the expander, the macro expander is there and it's it's easy to shuffle values around. And, and from an early early point, we had in mind that pictures should be values the same way as numbers, say. 
um, which is good for teaching beginners. So that's always been there. I, I agree. That's sort of the the side where things are more alive and more small talk like. And that's one of the things that it makes sense knowing that it was actually created firsthand with education. That explains a lot of that mentality as well as like, if I'm coming to this, I want to be able to see and walk through this nice and easily without actually having to set up a debugger and step in and know how a debugger works when I'm coming in. If I were to use an IDE like Eclipse for Java or Visual Studio for .NET languages or something else, where this seems a lot more intuitive of what's going on. That's true. I often hesitate to talk about the education angle of Dr. Racket because I think Racket sometimes gets pigeonholed as a language for education. And I think that mixes up two different things, a sort of classroom application of Racket and Racket itself. But you're absolutely right. That's our killer application originally, the programming environment and teaching programmers. And that explains kind of the mindset of why we have this environment that's as easy as we can make it to, to be and as easy to install and, and move things around as possible. And so one of the things, I guess what I was getting at is for someone who's new to Lisp or just beginning, whether or not they're just beginning Lisp or new to languages in general, that seems like it's a powerful feature to help kind of understand and comprehend how you build things up in Lisp. Because it's when I was digging into it, I had a little bit of college experience, which didn't actually click because it was so different than anything else. But digging in, it's like, okay, how do these different parts of these things get built up into bigger expressions. And it seems like just whether or not it's educational for someone who's completely new to programming, but helping someone to make that jump into lists or coming in and trying to understand some an existing program that's been around for five years is like, okay, what is this piece doing? Having that kind of environmental evaluation seems handy, whether or not it's purely educational or real world applications. Absolutely. I, I agree that there's a, a lot in common between when you're trying to learn something and, and when you're trying to use it in practice. And I think there is a an evaluation model that goes with functional programming that not everyone starts out with. Some of that is reflected in the stepping tool that works with the teaching languages to show you in the same way that algebra works with substitution, how the evaluation works in the programming model. But then building up on that to just having a read about print loop, being able to work with things interactively that way, and trying to leverage the graphic interface to draw arrows and show you connections between things. And that's all of the kinds of things we're aiming for. And with all that stepping stuff, I'm thinking of someone who's had to work on an application for nine years, and it's become a legacy application in the past. And there are plenty of places where I'd go in and not have a great deal because it was either written by a teammate and now I have to maintain this because they're on vacation or there was turnover and they've left since then. That stepping, how is that able to kind of give you at any point and kind of stop in or kind of like you would have a debugger and you get that full power, but a broader view of what's there in the ecosystem when you do that? I think the scenario you're describing is one where we don't do as well as we should yet, where you want to be able to take these larger programs and jump into them and, and evaluate them. On those kinds of fronts, the larger code bases and preserving things, uh, in the long run, we've been more focused on language design, things like type bracket, contracts. How do you go from you know a script that you threw together towards something that you want to maintain in the long run? And how do we provide sort of better support at that level from type checking to performance debugging? So there's still a lot we can do on that space, but especially on the debugging front. I have a student now who's looking at how to provide better debugging tools and hopefully let you jump in and expect things more in the middle of those 
not yet cleaned up legacy programs that you have to work with. Yeah. And it's one of those, as any program grows, if you do it right and do it successful, I know lifts in general are a lot smaller than some of their other counterparts just because of the higher level of abstractions you can get out of it and functions as first class citizens and things like that compared to some of these other languages. But at a certain point, the mental concept of a large application is still pretty large. But you kind of mentioned typed racket. So we'll kind of, I'd like to talk about that as well, because I had seen that as inspiration of the type closure. And how did that kind of come around in the racket environment? Do you, are you familiar with that history? Were you involved in some of that stuff? Or is that, have you, were you just on the periphery of type racket? I was more on the periphery of that effort. That was really uh, Matthias and Sam Tobin Hochstedt, who was his student at Northeastern. And, and that's really, again, a, a language with a long history in principle because Matthias had been trying to apply good typing to scheme-style programs for decades. TypeTrack it is, I forget, the fourth or fifth effort at applying a type system to scheme-style code without having to just mash the code around and make it more ML-style or Haskell-style. So Sam and Matthias started on that. You know, I think it must have been about 10 years ago. And it's, it's sort of the, the final, finally the successful point where they found the right kind of type system and the right way to approach the problem to merge the sort of scheme view and static types. Is that a progressive typing system as well, or is that something you have to go in and be typed from the beginning? So it's, it's designed for taking an untyped racket program and converting it to typed program at the granularity of modules. So typed racket is one of these things that you say hashlang typed racket, but all of these hashlang pieces in racket are individual modules, and the modules can import and export functions between different modules. And that boundary when you export and import, it's mediated by the fact that they all compile down to a, a core racket language. And in the case of typed racket, the boundary is set up so that if the type code is talking to untyped code, that there are runtime checks to make sure that the guarantees provided by the type system are preserved whenever untyped code tries to call it. So either the call will succeed or it'll fail and the untyped code will be properly blamed. So that was part of the, um, you know, one of the, the key ingredients for making this all work is the, the contract work by Robbie Findler and Matthias to sort of have a model of how to put runtime checks on a general boundary, not just a boundary where you have functions passing numbers and string across, but where you're passing high order functions and ultimately objects or whole components. And that was another long history that's gone in parallel and some to some degree with type track it to, uh, to figure out how to make these runtime checks work right for different constructs and then how to have a type static type system so that you can avoid the checks when you're in the typed world and get static guarantees about, uh, about how your code is going to work. So the answer there was definitely not do you have to convert your whole code, your, your whole program over. Um, it's meant to be gradual in the sense of you, you gradually convert some pieces to type track it. And the module thing sounds interesting in two ways. A, it isolates the part and gives you an ability for that gradual typing. But B, it also, correct me if I'm wrong, but it would allow you to make sure that this whole thing is typed and that if you start typing it, you can't accidentally get into yourself through laziness or whatever whatever other means into having code that becomes untyped inside your same module because you started adding new functions and, oh, I didn't put a type definition. Would that prevent that option B, that scenario B, from happening as well? 
Yeah, it's not a gradual type system in the sense, uh, maybe optional typing is the word that's sometimes used. It's not an optional type system where you start putting some types around and the compiler kind of uses it and it, you sort of get some static guarantees that, well, you get some static error messages that may or may not have any guarantees behind it. Type track it takes a pretty hard line on if your module is typed and the type checker says it's okay, then there are certain things that will not happen. Uh, the same as you would get in a language like ML or Haskell. That sounds a whole lot nicer than what I was thinking of. Because I've messed with some Erlang where you can put your type specs but and have an extra program that runs it. But that has no real guarantees and it's easy to get that out of date with what your actual function is because it's only kind of, as you said, the optional typing, which if you're not strict about it, it's easy to fall out and then get out of date. Whereas the way you've described type racket means you've got to be strict and you've got to be enforced on it. And once you've bought in, it makes sure you continue to buy in and don't succumb to bad habits or laziness. That's right. You can always erase the types, but no one ever does because they, they get used to the advantages. And then you were just on the Cognicast recently and you had a previous episode, but you were talking about some of your current projects you were working on. So I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about what you've been doing yourself specifically in the Racket community. I believe on there you mentioned you were talking about redoing the macro system. That's right. That was my big project for the last year. Um, the The Racket macro system has been around about 15 of those 20 years that we talked about. And it was derived from Kent Dibvig and others, the, the macro system that was in Shea to do hygienic macros. I sort of read the paper and took that algorithm and implement it directly. And it served us really well. But it was always a little bit unsettling, sort of the, maybe it's a complexity or a kind of distance between what we want to say, which is that macros are hygienic, and the particular machinery that makes them happen. So that was one discomfort with that particular model. And another was just that as we put even more demands on our macro system, in particular with submodules, which is just a, a module nested inside of another, but with different lifetimes, um, then that sort of implementation was starting to get fragile and wasn't really working right when you had certain kinds of submodules and type tracking. So I set out to find a different way of describing uh, the mechanism behind hygiene, and that attempt seems to be successful. So we have merged this new macro system into the current Racket development branch and expect it to be out in the next release, which would be October or so, October, early November. Um, it's not 100% compatible with the old macro system, but it's mostly compatible, especially for macros that are just uh, sort of high-level pattern matching macros. And the error messages that you get when things go wrong in the more complicated cases hopefully provide more information. And the implementation is uh, just way better from my perspective. The, the data structures make more sense. It was easier to make it run fast. It's been easier to manage uh, lexical information in bytecode formats and make the generation of bytecode deterministic, whereas before the data structures were too complicated and hash table oriented to really get the, the exactly the same bytes out every time. So that's sort of the, the motivation and results picture without actually talking about how it works. So I could do that next if you'd like. Yeah, we'll go into that. I want to get a quick clarification of what hygienic macros mean for anybody who's not necessarily completely in the list world or have, has heard of the term. Because what I've seen is my, and I'll give you my understanding and you can correct me where I've got gaps as well. 
is that if you have a variable that's declared outside the macro and you wind up declaring a variable inside the macro as well, it's going to overwrite that other variable and you're going to get environmental lookup conflicts on which which version of the variable x you're talking about. Is this the x outside of the macro or the, the x inside? And generally the way that I've seen it be worked around from reading up on Lisp and reading some of the Lisp books trying to understand it is that you generally have something where you generate a new symbol and it's just a temporary variable that represents a, na a new name that you're less likely to have collisions with. But hygienic macros essentially give you the context of where that variable that you're referring to came from and will use that based off the context. Is, is that a appropriate rundown? That's the general idea. So I would phrase that as making macros work with lexical scope the way you would expect. And in the same way that lambdas don't really work with dynamic scope, you need lexical scope uh, for them to work. So that if you are if you have a lambda sitting where and it refers to x, uh, that's sitting, you look outside the lambda and you see the x, and no matter where that lambda flows, it means the same x. It's the same kind of thing with hygienic macros, wherever you when you define a macro and you say what it's going to expand to and you want to expand to a reference to x, that when you use the macro, the x that shows up there in the expansion really does mean the one that it meant at the source of the macro. And then the flip side of that is if your macro introduces an identifier that's in a binding position that doesn't accidentally capture something that was around the macro use or, or inside the macro use. Let's dig in a little bit and explain how the new macro system works and let's dive a little deeper onto some of those changes that you had now that we've kind of for anybody else that that didn't have context has a little more context about what hygienic macros mean right and you started describing some mechanisms just there where you talked about picking a different variable name and that has to some degree been the historical way of describing this what that's trying to do is take macros and really squash it into the lexical scoping box to say that the reason this X that we introduced doesn't capture things, it's because it has a different name. So um, so those names in the lexical scope sense don't collide. But it turns out that thinking about this renaming is a kind of dynamic way, a less declarative way of thinking about it. And when you have macros that expand the macro de definitions, that expand to local macro bindings and so on, then the, the sort of renaming history gets hard to reason about not unlike the way stateful programs get harder to reason about because it's a kind of dynamic view of things. So the way we think about it in this new macro system is that whenever you have a binding form that is a new scope, so lambda creates a scope, let creates a scope, a module creates a scope, and so on. And when you have a piece of syntax that's inside several lambdas, say, then it's in all of those scopes. So we would talk about the, the syntax as acquiring those scopes. In other words, a piece of syntax has a set of scopes that corresponds to the binding constructs that it's inside. And in a world with lexical scope and no macros, then these scopes nest in a simple way. You know, lambdas inside of lambdas inside of let, and so on. And eventually, when you have an identifier like x, you find the meaning of x by looking for the closest x, which, if you're thinking about these scope sets, means an x that has the most scopes in common, or the biggest subset. The binding with the biggest subset compared to all the scopes you have on the particular identifier that's a reference. So if you just have lexical scope, then this is just a more complicated terminology for, for the way we think about things already. 
But when you have macros, they pull in pieces of syntax from the side compared to lexical scope. A macro defined in one module, when it's used in another module, the pieces that that macro introduces come sort of around any other lambdas that are around the use site. And so the sets don't nest in this, the same way that they do with lexical scope. But thinking about them as these sets and still looking for the binding that has the most in common, you know, the binding with the big subset, biggest subset of the references scopes, that is an idea that works. It is intuitively appealing because you're thinking about the set of all binding places where this identifier came from. And turns out it works out in practice, which we didn't know until we tried it out in Racket. And you mentioned the macros inside of macros inside of macros inside of macros inside of macros kind of problem. Does that, and that would play in like if you have your very small core language and then everything is built on top of macros on top of that, right? Like an if, there is no such thing as an if, it is just a macro on top of a, essentially a condition kind of function that expands out and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, there's two kinds of macro chaining. There's a macro that expands to a macro that expands to a macro that expands to a macro. And that's actually the easier kind to handle. The more, the less obvious kind and the harder ones to handle are macros that when they expand, they define more macros and they may define them just locally. So the usual example we talk about is suppose you're making a macro to write down classes in a Java sense. Then when you reference a field somewhere inside that class, it's really there's an implicit this dot in front of it. And so the way that you would do that with a racket macro is the class macro would introduce macro definitions for each field name. So if size is the name of a field in the class, then size gets locally defined as a macro that expands to this dot size roughly. And that's also a local macro definition because it only applies within the body of the class. And then so on for inside of methods referring to different methods. And, and you know, when you do a method call locally, then you sort of insert the, the this argument automatically. So that's one example, but it very often happens that when you build up a new syntactic form, that it's useful to describe it as a macro that expands to definitions of macros and local definitions of macros that can refer to things in their expansion that were also introduced by the outer macro and so on. And that's the kind of macro nesting that gets more interesting and traditionally harder to reason about, although we hope that that is now easier to reason about as well. And all these macros also become support runtime macros, right? It's not just all compile time macros, correct? This is all compile time macros. There's still a vowel sitting around at runtime. So you can go back into the compile time world. And there's even a vowel around at compile time. So you can kind of go to a, a meta compile time world. In fact, we keep these phases pretty strictly separated as much as we can. I think that was another kind of thing that went wrong with earlier list macro systems, where the order of expansion was mingled with the order of evaluation and it made programs harder to reason about and harder to even analyze statically. So we've stayed away from that kind of pitfall. And it was another direction of research actually to, to sort out macro systems and macro phases and modules and how they all interact. Okay, yeah, I've seen different things where it's like, oh, is this a runtime macro or is this a compile time macro? But, and I was like, as you were describing that, I'm like, that could be really extra confusing if all of a sudden you're actually pulling in dynamic state of your program based off uh, evaluation at runtime of that macro. That's right. Yeah. 
you want to be able to look at an expression and say what it means. And the way you can do that is because it's inside some particular module in some particular language, and other modules can't mess with that. So what else have you been working on in Racket, either right before that or what's your next project kind of coming up that you're looking at, digging into, and excited about? Well, before that was a lot of work on the package system with Jay McCarthy. Racket has had a package system for a long time called Planet, but uh, that was sort of version one of, and we learned a lot about packaging and what we wanted to do from that system. So the new package manager was the second system on that, and we got that going and we're very pleased with the new packages that are showing up and as well as our ability to refactor the main Racket distribution into a bunch of packages and, and make the management of that more distributed. So that was before. And then going forward, my plans have more to do with restructuring the runtime system, pulling it apart into smaller pieces, moving parts that are currently in C, just sort of built into the core runtime system, move them out as libraries, better manage the dependencies between the different layers and sort of dependencies on many things on many other things is why so much is in C at the moment. That's why the macro system is still in C because the compiler depends on it, okay, but also loading code, bytecode, depends on it to some degree because bytecode has macros, which has quoted bits of syntax, which need all of the syntax machinery. So we're looking at how to pull those pieces apart in a better way, how to build them in a higher level language, and overall being able to make Racket run on multiple, you know, more target platforms that way, uh, since there'll be less of a core runtime system to port. Okay. And I was about to say, that sounds like, I think that's what you're talking about when you were on the Cognicast talking with Craig Andera about being able to possibly move it to JavaScript and have it be some of these other target environments besides just the normal Racket runtime. That's right. And so Racket, the Racket runtime right now is its own runtime implemented in C. We don't get all the benefits of the JVM. We don't get all of the benefits that you get from a JavaScript environment right now. Um, so we would like to be able to get those kind of benefits depending on your application area. And so we want to be able to, it's pretty straightforward to compile core Racket to any of those platforms, but it's the, the runtime support, all the things that are built into the virtual machine, the particular flavor of threads and, and uh, concurrency constructs, you know, synchronizable events, custodians for managing things beyond just memory, and so, you know, delimited continuations, all of these things we want to be able to to move out of the core runtime system and into libraries. And, uh, you know, some parts of those are more challenging than others, but we'll chip away at it for the next few years. With that, you're kind of talking about the future of Racket, and it seems to be blossoming and growing, and even picking up some steam, I guess, since you said it was 20 years old. Which I, which is one of the reasons I didn't realize it was that had been around for that long is there seems to be some energy and revitalization going on in that then because from the outside it's like oh there's this community growing up and blossoming around it ever so slowly <laughs> I think that's right yep ever so slowly it's from my perspective it's been a kind of gradual consistent growth over twenty years so. It's, I've seen many other languages grow much faster over that time, but I've seen even more languages just not survive. So I'm happy that we're still around and still growing and still thriving, and it's great to see the, the new things that are going on. 
the overnight success that only took 20 years to accumulate? <laughs> That's right. That that would be ideal. With that future, what are, I'm kind of wanting to go into RacketConf, but before we kind of talk about the Racket Conference that's coming up, what other things are should people be looking at in the Racket community as things that are going on? You kind of mentioned what you're looking at in the next year or two. What are some of the other things that you that you can talk about and mention that other people are working on that that's coming for the future of Racket? So since I spend so much of my time focused on the core runtime system, I worry that I'm not the best person to to tell you about the the broader things that are going on. I know that TypeDracket is thriving and growing, and many many people are contributing there now. There's a, a new functional data structures library uh, from Alexis King that I'm excited about because. I think one of the directions we need to go in Racket is to have more functional and generic data structures. I think a lot of us agree on that. So there's lots more application kinds of libraries. I really like Neil Toronto's Picked 3D library for making 3D games in the same style that we have done 2D games for a long time for education. You know, as a simple way of getting started on 2D games, there's the World Teach Pack. But uh, you know, it's it's a nice way of writing things in general. And Pict three D has has made that made three D more accessible even to people like me. And I think there are a lot of packages going up on uh, the Racket package repository that people can find. Uh, Matthew Butterick's Pollen language for for typesetting. I have an interest in typesetting myself, but it's always sort of working up to the level of LaTeX or HTML and let those take over. With always the sense that. LaTeX and HTML are terrible backends, and I'd like to have something better. Maybe Matthew Butterick will be able to give us something better there. Um, I'll put him on the spot here and make sure he gets it done <laughs> by advertising it for him. Yeah, that's the things I can think of. And and then I guess we're going to get to RacketCon, but I would look at other things that are there. Talking about scripting GIMP is one of the, the talks by Samuel Rebelski. You know, a spreadsheet processing system from Byron Davies. Those are examples of other things that people are building and putting out there. So yeah, let's move right on to RacketConf. I heard, the I don't know if it was the first one, but the first time I heard about it was last year's RacketConf, and you're having one again this year, and it's around the Strange Loop Conference? That's right. RacketCon is co-locating with Strange Loop in the sense that we're at the hotel, which is the conference hotel. It'll be the day after Strange Loop, so that's a Sunday this year. And it's a one-day, full-day conference. And I heard about it last year with the Strange Loop as well. And it was, again, when you were on with Craig Andera on that previous episode, he was talking about how it was a cheap last-minute conference to stick around and get there. About how many people did you kind of see at RacketConf last year because it was co-located with Strange Loop? I think we had about 60 to 80 people last year. And that's a similar size that we had in previous meetings in Boston. We had done it in Boston before because that's where a lot of racketeers are, especially at Northeastern, but just around the Boston area as well. So we moved to Strange Loop last year in the hope of making ourselves accessible to a broader group of people. Um, you know, Strange Loop is filled with lots of people who have many of the same interests and goals as we do. So. Um, we were pleased with that co-location last year, so we're trying it again this year. And so far, we're looking pretty good, and we're excited to be there. Yeah, it looked like a great little event to be around, just because I've seen Strange Loop, and there are different tracks, and it's 
kind of broad and all over the place, and it seems like that's something that a another functional language mini conference would fit in well. Did you find that brought in a new fresh set of people coming in saying, well, let's check this out? Did it did you see some a lot of interest in the outside community once you kind of put yourself with that other established event? We saw quite a few new faces at the conference, and it's hard for me to know how much of that carried over into whether some of our the new active Racket developers came from that group or not. But it was about half and half last year, and I expected about to be similar this year. So I think it has worked in terms of making the conference more accessible to, to more kinds of people that aren't already doing lots of things with Racket. And you mentioned that it was happening previously as meetings. Is there a different format that's going on now, or is this just kind of a everybody get together and talk about what you've done and share, or is this kind of there's a kind of group that says, hey, here's the future of Racket, kind of a core driving team that's working on, or how, how does this record conference look from someone who might be interested in checking it out. Right. So the conference has evolved from the first few years where most of the people who work on, many of us who work on the core part of record are in academia. And our, the first record con or two was more research and education driven, talking about our research that's record based and talking about teaching and so on but with always some application focus. And we've kind of shifted more and more towards the application focus. There's a little bit about education, maybe when people are interested in talking about that. Not so much research that we talk about, although this year the macro system may be a little point there. More about what the plans for Racket are and applications of Racket, people talking about what they're doing. So still a, a spectrum sort of between core developers talking about progress and plans, to anybody interested in, in talking can talking about what they're doing with Racket can can propose a talk and we're always eager to, to hear about those sorts of things. Have you gotten a feel from those conferences how much it switched into kind of that real world applications that people are actually starting to use and develop versus just being something you're you were using for proving out education and proving out conceptual theoretical ideas and making sure you can do them and then spreading the word later? Yeah, I have the sense that Racket is used in a lot of places for smaller projects, uh, commercial projects, or used in for large projects and, and smaller companies. It is not, as far as I know, the main language for any large amount of development at a larger company. Um, but I think at this point, the practical application of Racket is probably... Um, in similar volume to the sort of research side of things. And raw users, I'm sure there's still more college students using Racket as a scheme or, or Racket platform and beginning or upper level courses. But in terms of where the energy goes these days, I would say it's about split between research and uh, application now. Okay. Because I remember hearing you, I'm, again, I may misquote you, but the way I'm here, I remember hearing you talk about on the Cognicast was that you want to bring these ideas out and not just have it stuck in research. So I was kind of wondering how much you saw at the last conference, because I think you said you were pleasantly surprised with some of the things that people were doing and using it, but I didn't know how much of that was just from what you could tell making its way out versus being, hey, this is the fun language I want to program and do stuff on the side with. Yeah, we're certainly in the academic space among those who think that 
good research comes from applying it, from, from getting it out in practice and seeing what works and what doesn't. Whenever I talk about that, I think about my dissertation, which half of it, I think, was very successful in the research world, but I don't think turned out to be very useful practically. And that's the kind of thing you learn when you put tools out there and get people to use. And the flip side of that is that building Racket and building something useful is what I actually enjoy. And research has been a venue that lets me uh, keep doing that um, because I can sort of tie them together. Uh, and I would say that I have been surprised and sometimes surprised, but definitely often happy with, with the way that Racket is getting used and the, that are, people are finding it useful for real problems. So where are some good resources for people to go to if they're interested in Racket and wanting to either check out a list for the first time and decide they like the idea of Racket and what little we've talked about of Dr. Racket and want to get in and use that to get their experience and feet wet with Racket or as a functional language in Lisp or as someone who's coming in and just wanting to check out the new list and see what things are different in, about Racket versus some of the other Lisps that they're using, say Clojure or Common Lisp or Scheme, pure MIT scheme itself. So the way to get started is to go to racket-lang.org um, and you can download Racket there. You'll find a few uh, example programs right on the front page. Um, you'll find a, a link to the documents, which are the same documents that get it uh, locally installed when you install uh, Racket. And in the documentation, there's some tutorial style documents at the beginning, which are sort of showing Racket, how Racket does different things like simple introduction to functional programming or functional programming in pictures, or how to build web servers and deal with TCP kinds of things. Um, in Racket and manage processes. So there's a kind of a spectrum of tutorials, and then there's the Racket guide, which is intended for, okay, you're a programmer, here's the Racket basics that you need to get going, and then there's the reference and lots of other reference material. We try to cover the, the full spectrum with our documentation from tutorials to guide style semi-details, but still with a roadmap to reference manual with all the details. Um, we could always use more material on that, but to, to find what there is, racketlang.org is a good place to start. And then from there, the mailing list or the IRC and Slack channels, uh, those are where you can go to ask more questions and talk to other racketeers. Is there any other advice besides the docs? Like how applicable if someone was picking up Paul Graham's on list book or SICP and any of these other list book or Norvig's AI AI book that uses list. How much of this is like, are there good documentations on the racket site that says, if you're kind of thinking coming from this list, here's how you, that translates as well. Do you have some, a racket dialects versus some of these other dialects and how they translate or is modules just taken care of? It's possible someone has put that together thing that I know is just the racket guide, which kind of shows you in a way that you would go through very quickly if you're familiar with the Lisp. I should also mention that there's a book, Realm of Racket, which is uh, showing you racket-like stuff. It was inspired by Land of Lisp. Okay. And then there's the How to Design Programs textbook, but that's really more of a, a textbook for a beginning programmer as opposed to a way of understanding. It's, it's not so helpful as understanding racket, the regular language. It's more about learning to program using teaching dialects of uh, Scheme and Racket. Okay, since you mentioned the book, is that book used Lisp as an example or not? It's been on one of the books on my 
wish list of read books, but I haven't actually gotten a chance to dig into it. So does that use Lisp as its foundation and how to design programs? Uh, what how to design program uses as its foundation is functional programming. So in a sense, it's a types-oriented book. It tells you if you're thinking about a problem, you need to think about the data first. That data will have a particular shape that drives the shape of your program. Write tests like this and so on. The notation that it uses is a dialect of Racket. You know, it's a simplified version that's simplified in ways that let the environment provide better error messages and because the simplifications match what we know beginning programmers are trying to do. So it's the notation is Racket scheme Lisp derived, but the model of programming that it's telling you is more intended to be a compendium of what we understand the right way to write programs is. Okay. It's one of those books that have been on my wish list for a number of years that I just haven't gotten around, as with so many other books that are always there to read. So when I saw, when I was putting everything together for this, I was like, oh, you were on that book too. So I wasn't sure how well it would fit in having not had the chance to read it, but I wanted to bring that up since you brought it up and just see if what language it was. I suspect since you are an experienced programmer that you will flip through it and it'll all look pretty obvious. But if you go through it carefully, and this is Matthias's work really, that's the main author of the textbook. When you go through it carefully, I bet you'll find insights there about the right way to do certain things or why even you do the things that you already do. Well, and that presumes that I've actually picked up good habits and have gotten the right intro to how to design programs instead of luck my way into that as well. So, Yeah, well, anyone who feels like they may have an incomplete background can also go there and sort of try thinking as a beginner at the beginning. And In fact, if you have a certain kind of experience, that can be an obstacle, obstacle starting out from this textbook. But if you have a certain kind of experience and know that you want something different, then maybe that's another recommendation for how to design programs. So is there anything else we didn't talk about that you want to make sure we promote and let people know about? We have covered everything that's on the front of my mind this moment. So Okay. Is there anything that people should do if they want to check you out and follow you and keep up to date with what's going on? We mentioned the Racket Lang site, the IRC channels, and the mailing list, but anything else that we are there regarding Racket or even just following some of the stuff you're putting out in research and... You can always go to con.racketlang.org. There'll be a pointer to that from the main Racket page, which is about RacketCon. And then if you are interested in the research side, you'll find that you follow the links to the people and our homepages will have pointers to papers and other things that we've written that are more research and academic oriented. Okay. I think that's everything we have. So just if people want to follow you, just check out your site on the Utah. That's right. Yep, my main mode of communication is the racket mailing list. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo, and I would like to thank you again, Matthew, for taking your time out of your lunch to talk with me today. Thanks very much for the opportunity. This has been Mind Expanding and definitely putting Racket up on a list of things next to play with next time I dig into a list. I'll make sure it's going to be probably most likely a version of Racket after as the next list that I do aside from what I'm playing with now. So it's making its way up there, and everything here sounds really interesting and mind-expanding. All right, very good. Thank you for talking with me. Thanks. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.